We'll hear argument next in 068120, Brendlin versus California. Ms. Campbell? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. <clears throat> when an officer makes a traffic stop, activates his flashing lights, he seizes not only the driver of the car, but also the car and every person and everything in that car. This unremarkable conclusion is what Petitioner asked this Court to rule, on, rule today. This simple rule is not only firmly rooted in this Court's precedence, it also protects police officers and the liberty interests of everyone traveling on a public street or highway. These are well, it wouldn't apply in a taxi cab, right? I mean, a cab's driving erratically, the officer pulls it over. If I'm a passenger in the cab, I think I can get out and catch another cab, right? Whether or not you can get out and catch another cab is sort of a separate issue. There's a, but at the moment that the car comes to a stop, you've been stopped by government means intentionally applied, and I believe you are seized at that point. After that, it may become a factual question under the totality of the circumstances, and it may be significantly different from that, uh, from the question we face in a case like this where it's a passenger in a private car. And would that car. apply if a bus was pulled over? If a bus Everybody is, on the bus is seized? Once again, uh, forward motion stopped by government means intentionally applied is a seizure under this Court's holding in Brower. But you'd have no reason, if you were a passenger on the bus in the normal case, to assume that the officer was concerned about you, your, your view would not be that they're stopping me. You'd think they're stopping the bus because the driver ran a red light or whatever. With all due respect, I believe at that point what you believe is not necessarily the dispositive issue. The dispositive issue is that your freedom of movement has been cur curtailed by government action. Well, are you saying then that in a case in which the bus is stopped, the car is stopped, and so on, the, the, the role for the test about whether a reasonable person would regard himself as free to leave is a test to determine when the, when the seizure ends as distinct from when the seizure begins. Exactly, Your Honor. There's no, there's no other role for that test. Exactly, Your Honor. And I believe that's the, that's the rule we apply with, with respect to drivers. We don't normally formulate it that way because usually there's a directive from the officer saying, okay, you're free to leave. There's, some, there's a clear point where the seizure ends. But, yeah, but uh, you're, you're taking the position that whenever you are in a vehicle that is stopped, you are seized. Exactly. Yes, Your Honor. In this case, it, is it correct to, to view this as, uh, to view it this way? As soon as the officer approached the car, as I understand it, he recognized the defendant as a potential parole violator. Yes. And there would be reasonable suspicion then from that moment on for at least a brief detention of the individual to determine whether, in fact, there was a warrant for the individual. So all we're talking about the only period of, of potential seizure that we have to worry about is up to the moment when the officer sees Mr. Brendlin. In terms of determining when Mr. Brendlin was seized, yes. The, the In other words, any seizure after that point would be supported by reasonable suspicion. Well, except in this case, of course, it would be fruit of the poisonous tree since the, the State has conceded. Well, that's, that's the question. Do, do you concede that this arrest was lawful? The arrest itself, the arrest itself is still a product of the exploitation. You concede that the arrest was lawful. The officer was obligated to arrest this person knowing what he did, was he not? Yes, we concede that there's... Do you have any case in which uh, we exclude the evidence seized incident to an arrest when the arrest is lawful? Well, Your Honor, I, I don't have a case that has these specific facts. I didn't, this is I didn't a new think you did, uh, I, and, and that's my concern. I, I, I assume that this officer uh, was required to uh, arrest the person, and we can have hypotheticals. He sees somebody wanted for multiple murders and so forth. Um, but I, I'm just not aware of authority which says that when the arrest is lawful and the search is incident to that arrest, that the uh, evidence is excluded. Uh, what, what's your best, what's your closest case you can give me on that? Well, actually, I would turn to the cases that talk about searches incident to arrest and also um, go back to the, to the rationale for the attendance rule. Okay. Can I have one, please? Well, actually, let's look at um, Thornton and... Uh, Thornton, I'm not familiar with immediately. I'll look at Thornton and Knowles are two cases this, this Court has decided relatively recently where we talk about the rationale for searches incident to arrest. Um, the, they're, not, they're not cases that I would have considered to be directly on point for the, the seizure issue in this case, but 
Um, in Knowles, the court held that you can't, you can't search a car incident to arrest on a minor traffic stop because... No, no, no. This no. was a search of I, a person incident to an arrest. And I, I, I really jumped a little bit ahead of the uh, questions that Justice Alito was proposing. Um, there, there may have been a, a, a moment in which the officer did not have the authority to act, and he did, but it seems to me... Uh, that uh, once he has this knowledge, uh, there's now an intervening cause, and the arrest is proper, and the search as well. If I can divide this into two issues. First, we have the issue of the arrest itself, and I am aware of no mechanism by which Mr. Brenlin would be entitled to suppress the, the, the arrest itself, to not be arrested on the parole warrant, or to get out of jail free, so to speak. That is a separate issue, however, um, th- than discussing whether or not the evidence that comes out in this auto search, which is a direct product of the illegal stop, should be admissible in a criminal Well, it's a direct product, product of the arrest. And if the arrest is, is legal, then it seems to me the search incident to the arrest is legal. And are you acknowledging that the arrest is legal, that uh, whatever the exclusionary rule does, it does not require you, when, when you have engaged in an unlawful seizure, and you find an axe murderer sitting there in the car, you don't have to say, well, sorry, I shouldn't have stopped the car. You can arrest the, the person, right? It, so the arrest is legal. If the arrest is legal, then the, then the search incident to it must be legal. Well, I think we have to look, as I said, at the, per- the, the rationales for uh, allowing a search incident to arrest are the need to disarm the suspect to take him into custody and the need to preserve evidence for trial. In this specific case, he's arrested on a parole warrant. I can't imagine what evidence in that car would, be need, would need to be preserved in order to proceed on the parole warrant. Uh, what, what authority do you have that um, the ex- operation of the exclusionary rule depends on the offense for which he was rela- arrested? Well, the search incident to arrest is an exception to the, to the exclusionary rule. It's do you have any authority for the proposition you just offered? To the, 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 the search incident to an arrest leads to an exclusion in one case and not in another case, depending on the, the charge on which he was arrested? Well, if we're, what we're talking about is whether or not the exclusionary rule should apply. We look to the purposes of the exclusionary rule, which is to deter uh, unlawful police conduct. If we allow officers to make a stop on a hunch that someone has a, has a, um, has a warrant or whatever, we've, we've essentially reduced the deterrent effect of the exclusionary rule as it applies to traffic stops, as it is historically applied to traffic stops. This is, this is not a new proposition that if you stop a car and if he saw something in plain view after an illegal stop, he wouldn't be, it would still be excluded. Well, but why, why doesn't plain view kick in just as readily once it is conceded as it has to be? that at the point that he was making the arrest, the officer was acting lawfully. And if he was acting lawfully when he made the arrest, why doesn't he get the benefit of the plain view doctrine to the extent that he saw any evidence before him at that point? And I take it the plain view exception would at least cover the, I forget what it was, but the materials that were uh, in, the, in the passenger well of the passenger car, uh, that, that were known to be used as a source of, of ingredients for making methamphetamine. Well, I believe you misunderstood me. I, I wouldn't say that this, the plain view doctrine would allow admissibility, admission of that evidence. If the stop is illegal, then anything the officer No, sees I realize, but we've got, a, we've, we've got a choice here. And I mean, I think Justice Kennedy's question has brought this out. We've got a choice here of two ways to look at the state action at the moment of, of the arrest. One way to look at it would be to say it was a product of an unlawful stop. Another way to look at it would be to say uh, it was an act of executing uh, a validly issued warrant. And you concede that they at least could lawfully uh, have executed the, the arrest. They didn't have the arrest warrant, but there was an arrest warrant issued for him, and they could, they could lawfully execute that warrant and arrest him at that point. Let's assume that those are our two choices. On choice number one, the state, the, pl- the police officer, is, is acting someplace where he shouldn't have been. On choice number two, the parole violator, your client, is in a place where he shouldn't have been because he should have been arrested and he should have been back behind bars at that point. If we have a choice between those two ways of looking at the case, 
why don't we, for any purpose, give the casting vote uh, to the lawfulness of the arrest, to the warrant, which was issued by a neutral and detached magistrate at some point. And if we do that, then why isn't not only a search incident to an arrest, but the seizure of materials which were in plain view at the moment of that arrest uh, subject to a, an admissibility rule? Well, first, Your Honor, a slight correction. I don't believe there's any evidence that this was a warrant issued by a detached magistrate. This is what we call in California a PAL warrant under California Penal Code Section 3000 BA. Okay, but it was, it was a warrant that was lawful for Fourth Amendment purposes. Is that yes. conceded? Yes. Okay. Issued by the Board of Prison Terms. Um, but in terms of why we don't do this, it's the reason we exclude evidence in general when it's unlawfully seized, when it is the direct result of a, of a stop that is illegal from its inception. Well, all right, but you're simply saying uh, we, we give the we, — we, we put the greatest emphasis on Act A, stopping the car, rather than Act B, lawfully arresting regardless of well, the legality of stopping the car. Well, actually, we have, a, we have a test for this. It's the Brown test, it's the Wong Sun test, and the people have the burden. The test is — if there, even if there is attenuation, which, I, which is what the people are arguing the warrant in this case is, that's not the end of the inquiry. We also look at the flagrancy of the officer's misconduct, and we look at the temporal proximity to the initial illegality. And in this case, that attenuating circumstance is simply not — But do we, do we have in any of the cases — frankly, I don't re recall every — I remember Brown, but I, I don't think there was anything in Brown comparable to the lawful authority to arrest independent of the stop. And, and that's what makes this case unusual. Uh, and, and if we emphasize the lawfulness of the arrest, quite independent of the circumstances of the stop, and we also bear in mind that the point of the exclusionary rule is, is to deter police conduct, and you've got another party here, the driver, uh, who can invoke the exclusionary rule and deter police misconduct. I don't see where the interest would lie in or where the justification would lie in our saying we've got to put, as it were, all the eggs in the basket of the unlawful stop as opposed to the basket uh, of the lawful arrest. Well, Your Honor, I think actually I'm, I'm not sure that the driver in this case is going to have a remedy. If we look at the steps in this case, first we have this officer who makes an illegal stop. Um, he continues that detention uh, in order to run wa warrant checks on both parties. He finds probable cause to arrest Mr. Brenlin. He searches the car incident to the, the arrest, even though um, the Belton rationale for search incident to arrest is perhaps a bit shaky in this case because Mr. Ben Brenlin's in the back of the car and it's a parole warrant. Um, but at that point, the officer also searches the driver. And if the evidence is attenuated, or if the taint is attenuated as to Mr. Brenlin, and this is a lawful search incident to his arrest, I don't really understand how the driver is going to have a remedy as well. And in well, fact, uh, do we have a, an, an argument here that something was seized from the driver that should not have been seized from his person? The driver is not a party to the appeal, but she was convicted and and. Well, sentenced. but I mean that's not before us. We're no, it's not. As evidence seized from the defendant. No, Your Honor, I was responding to the question: of Doesn't the driver have a remedy, and isn't that enough to provide deterrence? But if we allow a warrant by one person in the car to attenuate the search, a search of the car, then, as I read this court's precedents, the search is attenuated. The taint. Is the, the California Supreme Court, as far as I could tell was thinking that it turns, you search somebody, you stop somebody if you make him think he isn't free to go. So, so you seem to me to give a lot of cases where he would feel free to go and you're saying still that that's a stop. Why? I mean, suppose the policeman comes along and he sees three people in a car and there is Jack the Ripper driving. So he says, okay, I'm stopping the car. Now, if the, he says to the other three people, I'm not interested in you. My pal and partner here is in a second squad car. He'll take you wherever you want to go. Have they been stopped? Have they been stopped by the initial seizure? seizure? Yeah. The initial stop of the car? Yes. Are okay. Well, I don't think you're going to find authority for that in the law, at least not in this court. I mean, I'd like to know what it is. Well, Maybe I, you are. I, I, I think the Brower decision has, Brower. the Brower opinion has a very but good But what were the test. facts there? Uh, well, in Brower, it was a roadblock, and the car, roadblock, yeah. the car crashed into it. But the, the crucial question, the crucial issue was that it was means intentionally applied by the government. What, what if the car, you know, the car doesn't come to a complete stop? The same facts that Justice Breyer just gave you. It's creeping along at, uh, a, you know, a foot a minute. Mm -hmm. 
And then he says to these other people, you can jump out and go, go wherever you like or, you know, go back to, to my partner's car. Then they wouldn't have been stopped. Is that right? I think then we have a totality of the circumstances test and whether someone feels free to leave and jump out of a moving car. But so I, you're, I, you're putting all your eggs in the basket that the, the car came to a complete stop and therefore they have been seized. And, and what is crucial for the seizure is the elimination of motion on the part of the car. That's Any elimination of motion in a vehicle in which you are the passenger constitutes, uh, at, at the request of, uh, of the authorities, constitutes a seizure. If it is by means intentionally implied, yes. I, I think that's, that's how that's, the dark But not if you're still rolling a little bit, a foot a minute. <laughs> well, then it would be a totality of the circumstances test. But it you? seems to me that you're, uh, you're blending two tests together, and, and tell me if I'm wrong. One test is, there's no question that if the police get control over people, those people are not free to go. Yes. And those are the motion cases, most extreme example being the, the, uh, the, the roadblock. Uh, Hodari D, did they, you know, they were trying to catch him, but did they actually get to the point of, of, of a seizure for Fourth Amendment purposes? Then you've got another category of cases in which there's no question that someone is stopped that a police officer can exercise control, and that control, if so exercised, is certainly going to be a seizure for Fourth Amendment purposes. But we don't know whether the officer really is exercising control. So we ask the question, would a reasonable person in the position of the individual stopped uh, have believed that he was free to go? Aren't those two quite distinct tests? The first test assumes the answer to the question in the second test, the second test assumes the answer to the first test, i.e., they're stopped, subject to control. Aren't they two independent tests? I agree with you that they are two independent tests. And as I went through this Court's precedents, I frankly could not find a single case in which a person had been in motion and stopped and came to a stop, a physical stopping of motion, in which this Court did not find that a seizure had occurred. Okay. So you were engaging in shorthand. You, you accept the analytical distinction, but you say, look, in the real world, once, once you stop, we, we, we know how the person would have felt, oh. a reasonable person would have felt. I think that what we have here is, it, I mean, as I said, it's really the way we look at it with drivers as well. There is a bright line. The car comes to a stop as a result of this display of authority. You are seized. From that point on, when you would, when a reasonable person would feel No, but aren't, you're saying, the, the, I thought by agreeing with you, what you were saying was, once the car is stopped, a reasonable person under those circumstances would not have felt free to leave. I think that's true. I okay. think a reasonable person would not What if the officer, when before even approaching the car, got on a loudspeaker and said, driver, remain in the car, passenger, you're free to go? I think under the totality of the circumstances, any court would have a hard time saying the passenger is not free to leave then, unless there's some other intervening fa some other but, fact. But you would say he's, he's still seized because the car stopped. He's seized by the stop, absolutely. Well, then you're, then you're blending the two tests together again. Well, there's two you, different You've either got to accept their analytical distinction or, or not. I do accept their analytical distinction, Your Honor. I think it's just, it's actually two different fact, two different points in time. There's the, there's the seizure that occurs when the car stops, and then there's the continuing seizure during the course of the traffic stop, which for the driver has a fairly clear ending point. For a passenger, it's going to depend well, on the What's facts. the difference between that situation where the, the police officer says on the loudspeaker, passenger, remain, driver, you're free to go, and the example that the state has in their brief in which a car is stopped and as a result of the way it's stopped on a narrow road, the other cars behind that car are for some period of time prevented from going forward. What, what's the difference between those two situations? That difference is actually addressed directly in Brower. Brower addresses that exact hypothetical, says a passerby who's inconvenienced by another stop. There you have government, a government-caused termination of movement, but it's but there's no intentionally means intentionally applied. So what, it, what it says here, getting out their quote from it, is it, it says it does not occur whenever there is a governmentally caused termination of individuals' freedom of movement, nor even where there is a governmentally caused and governmentally desired termination of an individual's freedom of movement, but only when there is a termination of freedom of movement through means intentionally applied. Now. The only way I can, I, I mean, I say difference between desired is that they didn't want to stop him. They, they're not interested in stopping him. That's not our desire to stop him. 
Our desire is to stop the driver. So if you don't have the desire, and if there is no real restriction of any significance, is there a stop? I mean, I would say, Brower, they cited on their side for that language. Your Honor, we are looking at we have to look at the objectively observable facts, which in this case are the flashing lights. We don't, I mean, the passenger has no particular way of knowing what the officer's intent is, which I think is why this Court has consistently held that the officer's subjective intent um, in, in, is irrelevant to the equation. Uh, well, the passenger, you'd also have to have two things. One, they don't intentionally want to stop him. Two, he doesn't think his movement is restricted where both of those things are true, then no stop. That's why the people who, say, are on the railroad car and they stop a whole train, but the railroad says, don't worry, not an inconvenience, we'll have another train for you in 10 or 15 minutes. Just get out, except for car one, where there's Jack River. Uh, 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 you know, those other people are not stopped. Now, that's their argument. What's your response? Well, my response is the same as it has been, that the passenger is certainly stopped when the car comes to a halt. Um, we discuss in our brief that the, there are reasons why a passenger could, why the car could be stopped. As far as the passenger knows, particularly in this case where we have, where it was an unreasonable stop, they, there was no traffic violation, neither the passenger nor the driver has any reason to know why they are being stopped. And Well, does that make a difference? Let's say they're, you know, the car drives through a red light, then the police lights come on. The passenger surmises that it's because he ran the red light. So that's a different case. You would say he's not seized. If he reasonably, reason, objectively reasonably assumes it's because of what the driver did? No, Your Honor. I, I would still say that the passenger is seized when the car comes to a stop. So then why are we pointing out that it, they didn't know? It makes no difference under your view of the case. Well, I don't think it makes a difference one way or another. I was responding to the, to the, to the suggestion that the passenger should somehow be aware of the officer's intent and know when he sees flashing, flashing lights that it means the driver. I don't think that that's a proper inquiry to determine whether or not. Well, then if all that matters is the physical stop, what do you do about the cases that were talked about earlier where the other cars have to stop because of the way? That's a physical stop, and yet our cases indicate you're not seized in those situations. That's a physical stop, but it's not. It wasn't the. It's not the um, the uh, means intentionally applied portion of the test doesn't doesn't work at, or doesn't. Um, well, how do you satisfy. explain the, the the justification for stopping, if the, if there is a seizure for stopping the innocent passenger because the tra- the driver has committed a traffic violation? If there's if that's a seizure of the passenger, then it's a seizure without reasonable suspicion or probable cause, right? No, I would say that that's a reasonable, a reasonable stop. That's the risk. When you, when you get into a car as a passenger, you take a risk that, that, the, that you may be subject to a reasonable search or, det- or deten- a reasonable detention. But the Fourth Amendment doesn't provide any protection for anyone against reasonable detentions, and that would be a reasonable detention. What? Was there a question? What, what about a, a shutdown of, a, of an airport? There, the, you know, there, 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 there's word that somebody has been seen walking in with a bag of explosives, or it looks like a bag of explosives. So they stop all planes on the tarmac, shut down all exits to the airport yeah, un- until they can uh, ascertain what this bag is. Everybody in the airport and everybody in those planes has been seized for Fourth Amendment purposes? No, Your Honor. Some of those people in the airport would be in the same position as the, peop- as the passengers in Bostick and uh, Drayton, where they weren't going anywhere in the first place. Um, the, and okay, just, just the people who were trying to leave the airport. They, were, they had just arrived, and they were going to go out to catch a cab and go home. They have been seized. I would say some of those people would be in the position of the passerby, the passersby identified in Brower. Probably, possibly some of them would be seized, but it sounds to me like it would be a reasonable seizure and, and wouldn't necessarily, um, it, I mean, a reasonable seizure, there's no Fourth Amendment protection. No, it turns out that there wasn't a bag of uh, explosives and that no reasonable person would have thought this thing was a knitting bag and some foolish cop thought it was a bag of explosives. That would have made it unreasonable. So everybody in the airport who was on the way home is, has been seized and has a cause of action. Given the extreme leeway given in airports, if, if, if it's so bad that, that there wasn't reasonable suspicion to shut it down, I'd, I'd say that's probably a reasonable result if we're shutting down entire airports for no reason whatsoever. But, but under the facts that, that you posited, it sounds like it would be exigent circumstances or something else that would make that a reasonable suspicion. 
uh, going back to our to um, the test that that uh, petitioner asked this court to adopt, the most important thing I can say about this test is not only does it reflect what I think is the real life expectation. Um, it also protects officer safety by providing a measure of predictability for both passengers and drivers and as well for our officers. And I'd like to reserve the rest of my time. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Zoll. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, uh, I'd like to uh, respond, if I could, to Justice Souter's uh, point earlier. Uh, the State sees this as having uh, two distinct components in a situation where a passenger is subject to a, uh, in a vehicle that's uh, subjected to a routine traffic stop. First, you have the stopping of the vehicle, the physical stopping of the vehicle. <coughs> Excuse me. In our view, that does not result in a seizure of a passenger. It's a show of authority, much like Hodari D discussed, which is directed at the driver. The driver is the operator of the vehicle. When the driver submits to that show of authority under this court's precedence, the driver is seized. The passenger is not even seized. even when the reason the driver is stopped is that uh, um, a, a, a police officer whose car was alongside he looks over there and and, and he sees that it is uh, some notorious felon who is in the back seat, and the only reason he stops the car is to arrest that felon. You would still say that uh, that the show of authority is only directed at the driver, and hence it is only the driver that sees? Uh, Justice Scalia, the way I'd answer that question is to say yes at the outset, because the driver is in control of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. By necessity, the show of authority to stop, if it's done in a routine manner, as was done here, is directed at the driver. That's the right Therefore, answer. I think you're being consistent. The driver is seized. That. You have to say that. Right. Consistent, consistent with that answer, consistent with that answer, what we're concerned with in these cases is not, like cases like this, is not literally the moment of the stop, but the moment of the stop plus one. And uh, in in cases like this, the I take it you concede the the, the question is, uh, would the passenger, would a reasonable passenger in in, in that situation feel free to leave? And in the absence of uh, a hypothetical like Justice Alito's, in which the loudspeaker says, um, all I want is the, the driver, passenger is free to go, and so on, absent something like that, uh, what is the argument that, the, that a, a reasonable person in the passenger seat would feel free to open the door and, and uh, traipse off? Uh, Justice Sear, I think the, uh, the pervasiveness and the commonplace nature of a routine traffic stop um, Have you ever been stopped? Have you ever been the subject of a traffic stop? Tell the truth now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. Okay. Yes, I have. <laughs> the heart rate went up. The blood pressure went up. Uh, but I was the driver. I was the driver. Don't you think uh, that a, a reasonable passenger at that point would assume that the officer is in control and that in the absence of some affirmative indication that the passenger can go, that he's supposed to sit there uh, until this thing gets over with. Isn't that the reasonable response of a passenger? No, no, Justice Sewer, I, I don't think so. I think, again, because the, the traffic stop is such a common occurrence, and in the overwhelming majority of a, uh, cases involving a routine traffic stop, the, it's an investigatory stop of the driver. And I think... It's reasonable for the passenger and the driver to see it that way. I would submit that if I am a passenger in a car and I'm riding with somebody and they, in, in one patrol car, uh, signals for the driver to pull over, I think the natural reaction is the driver says, what did I do? And the passenger says, what did you do? I mean, I think that's the natural reaction. Well, the, 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 the policeman usually tells the driver and anybody else in the car, stay in the car. Policemen don't like people jumping out of the car. They don't know why they're jumping out of the car. And I would certainly, if I were a passenger, not feel free to immediately open the door and start walking away. And if I did, I would expect the policeman to tell me, get back in the car. 
Isn't that, isn't that the normal procedure to keep the occupants in the car until the policeman investigates? Well, I think, uh, Justice Scalia, I think if the officer did tell you. No, even if he car, didn't tell me, I would have, I would have expected him to tell me. I wouldn't even open the door because I know he would tell me. I, I know that I'm not free to leave the car immediately until he investigates uh, the stop. Well, I, I, I'm not sure that I agree with that. I what, if, what if there's a suitcase in the back seat, just, just the driver, the driver's pulled over, and then somebody comes walking down the sidewalk, his driver's friend, he opens the car door, takes the suitcase, and starts walking away. Wouldn't the policeman say, put that back, because he thought he had seized not just the driver but everything in the car, too? Well, again, Mr. Chief Justice, I think that if, if — if the officer, our position is, if the officer does something to the passenger to indicate, no, no, I'm talking objectively. about the suitcase. You wouldn't, you wouldn't reasonably think someone can just take something out of a car that's been stopped by the officer uh, and, and walk off with it, right? Everything, all the contents of the car are seized as well as the driver, right? I'm not sure that a passenger, though, is like a suitcase. I mean, a suitcase can't go anywhere unless somebody you're does represent, You're representing the state of California, and you want uh, to establish the proposition that any time there's a traffic stop in the state of California, or I guess anywhere in the United States, all the passengers are free to immediately leave, uh, absent some further countermanding officer uh, order by the officer. I, I think that's a, a quite surprising proposition. Now, we don't have uh, empirical studies and so forth, but at some point the court takes judicial notice, and I think that indications from the bench are we just don't think passengers A are or B should fee, feel free to leave when there's a traffic stop. I, I just think you have no uh, social or em, 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 empirical documentation for that position. Well, although it's not cited in our brief, uh, Justice Kennedy, um, we have talked with the California Highway Patrol, who make over a million stops a year in California, and they treat passengers as free to leave. No, no, but I mean the question. So I want to know how to decide this case. I understand what your position is. But I think the normal instinct of everybody is not about boats, taxis, airports, and all these other examples, but this case. But I, I, I would say if you want to go on instinct, I wouldn't think of getting out of a car when I'm the passenger and the policeman has stopped it. But maybe I'm wrong. So when you asked a million policemen, how many instances did they tell you about where they stopped the car and all the passengers just jumped out and walked away? <laughs> Was there one? Was there one? Well, I mean, but I, I think um, that prudent behavior, just because it's prudent to do something, right. doesn't make it a seizure. That's the I right answer. I, yeah, I, I never pass a police car. I don't care how slow I'm going. I never pass a police car. I, I don't consider myself arrested just because that's the prudent thing to do. And, and it, it may well be a similar situation when you're sitting in a car that's been stopped by a, by a, by a traffic policeman. I, I mean, I think, I think again, that... that, that uh, Mr. Zahn, let's say we have it, just an intelligent, reasonable person reads the newspaper and says, oh, they, they handed down a decision today that said... The police can order me to get out of the car. The police can order me to stay in the car. How could such a person feel free to leave knowing that it is the law that that person can be told, get out, or if he tries to get out, stay in? Well, Justice Ginsburg, I'd, I'd say that, um, you know, in, in the Court's uh, seizure jurisprudence, there's this notion of a consensual encounter. I think when an officer approaches a citizen on the street, there's always the apparent authority. The apparent authority of the police is always present. The police always have the factual uh, upper hand, if, if you were, and that the traffic stop is no different. I mean, and yet this, this Court has repeatedly said that when the police approach a citizen, uh, ask for his identification, ask for his cooperation, even if the police follow him in a squad car, uh, that that's a consensual encounter. Does it I'm matter if they're on the Santa Monica freeway? I, I don't think so. I mean, it would be pretty dangerous to get out. <laughs> well, but, but that would be a reason why you don't get out. 
that so, doesn't have anything necessarily to do with the police coercion. I mean, I don't think a pa- most of us wouldn't get out, but that doesn't make it a seizure, just like most of us would cooperate with the police uh, when the police approach us on the street. Um, but I don't think, if anything, I think the traffic stop is less ambiguous. It's clearer that the police are not interested in, in me if I'm a passenger. Suppose after the stop, the passenger in the back seat starts to get out, and the officer says, stay in the car. Is he then seized? Yes. Yes, because now the police have directed action at him, and in that situation, but a reasonable person... That means person that, the, that the authority to cause the person to stay in the car existed throughout the stop. The authority, yeah, but I mean, I think the police always have some degree of authority over well, us in any encounter. Meeting down on a, on a casual street in the, in the downtown, if they say, I'd like to stop and talk to you, you don't have to stop. There's no authority to make them stop. But there is authority for the passenger in the back seat of the car. Well, it depends, Justice Stevens, I think. Is there legal authority? I mean, they, I think police always have the factual authority, and I think that's the what the way the reasonable person looks at things. I don't think the reasonable person... There's a difference between legal authority and factual authority? I don't think in this context there is. I mean, I, I, some, well, certainly in, in the... legal authority. I'm sorry, just If there's no difference, then there's legal authority, which well, I, would mean the person is subject to, is in custody of the officer. No, I don't think so. Any more so than, than uh, Mr. Drayton was in the Drayton case, where his compatriot was arrested and the police continued to engage him and this court found that that was a consensus. How, how are we supposed to? I mean, I think this is quite interesting. How, how do you suggest we decide this? I don't mean the result, but I, I'll go, I'll say yes. You've done your survey of the policemen. A million policemen think they're not restricting the movement of the passenger. Very few passengers jump out of the car, but that may be because they're risks, they're worried about being run over. So we say, well, in fact, they're restricted, but they don't think they're being restricted by the police. Or do they? And here we have no idea. At least I have no idea. I really don't know what the majority think. And yet it would seem totally relevant. How would we find out? Well, Justice Breyer, I mean, I think that, that in this Court's, to be consistent with this Court's consensual encounter jurisprudence with Rodriguez, with Royer, with uh, Drayton, with Bostick. Um, but those are encounters in an airport where there are pedestrians. There's no no authority to make the person stay. We're here. I think you've, you've conceded that there's a legal authority to require the person to stay where he was. Yes, yes, I do, Justice Stevens, but I think the and point is, is, the, is that if, if it wasn't a seizure, what's the source of the legal authority? Well, I, again, I think, though, that, that it's, it's a question of seizable versus seized. I don't think just because the police have some authority that that makes you seized. I mean, if, if the police see a citizen uh, jaywalking, uh, that person is not arrested because the police have the authority to make to arrest him. Um, so I, again, I think I think that the seizure occurs when the police exercise some authority over you. I just think the traffic stop is less ambiguous. Uh, it's clear that the traffic stop is to deal with the driver, whereas in the street if it's, encounter, if it's not. If, if the opposite is true, then it, then it is a seizure even though they stopped the car? Then, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I would say that it's a seizure uh, that, that, that at the outset, again, uh, per Justice Scalia's uh, hypothetical, mm-hmm. that the, the driver only is seized at the outset. But then, once the police make it clear that their interest is with the passenger, uh, then the passenger would not feel free to leave, and then the passenger even if they would make that them. even if they make that interest clear prior to the stop. Yeah, I, I think it would sort of happen instantaneously. Um, no, they pull up next to him and they see that it's uh, Brendlin is the, the the passenger, and they yell over, pull pull over, Brendlin. Uh, so they direct their action, they direct their attention at the passenger at the outset. Yes, then I would say, the driver is seized by the stop. And then, right immediately, the passenger, the reasonable passenger, would not feel free to leave, and then he would also be seized at that point. But again, I, I, I hearken back to the court's consensual encounter uh, jurisprudence. It seems to me that, again, the street encounter 
is more anxiety-forming for the citizen because the police have directed it your attention be, at you. It may be, but you can walk away. You're not in an enclosed space. Suppose the passenger knows when the police approaches, oh, my goodness, I didn't buckle up. Would that passenger be the object of the police authority from the start? Well, in your hypothetical, Justice Ginsburg, the, the passenger would not be an innocent passenger, and the court's uh, test presupposes an innocent person. So you can't really ask the question from the perspective of the seatbelt violator. So it could be. It could be sometimes uh, you see the attention is directed at the driver, but that's not always the case. I, I, again, I, 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 um, as, as Justice Souter indicated, I think you have to you have to break it up. At the outset, the show of authority is, by nature of the, of the vehicle, is directed at the driver. After the, the, the vehicle comes to a stop, the police could manifest some interest in the passenger, and then that changes things. But on, a, on your earlier answer to Justice Ginsburg, uh, there's no authority in this court to say that whether uh, you deem yourself stopped or not depends on whether you think you're innocent. We have there's zero authority for that. That's correct. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's correct. That's correct. It's it's that the perspective must be we must look at it from the innocent passenger and whether the innocent passenger would, as a result merely of the stop of the car, feel free. Going going back to Justice Stevens' question, the passenger knows the minute the red light goes on that police can either tell him to get out or tell him to stay in. He knows at that very moment. That seems to me substantially limits his freedom of action and indicates that he's safe. Well, again, I think f- factually, citizens, when they encounter police, always know. I mean, the policeman in any encounter is armed, uh, is typically armed, and has apparent authority over you. And yet this Court has repeatedly held that that in and of itself, although it may cause some anxiety on the yes, part of the citizen. in the central case, he doesn't, in fact, have the authority. He has apparent authority. But in this case, he has actual authority, not just apparent authority. Right. But, but, it, but, Justice Stevens, again, I don't think that, that uh, the reasonable, innocent passenger is — this Court has never said it's the reasonable, innocent passenger that knows the Supreme Court's Fourth Amendment jurisprudence by heart. I mean, you're saying he doesn't have actual it, authority. If I understand you, you're saying he has no authority to stop uh, an innocent passenger from walking away. Aren't you saying that? Unless there's some reason to hold a person in the car, he has no authority to stop him from walking away. I think that is the current state of the law. Yes, that is the current state of this court. What if I feel, even though that's the current state of the law, I wouldn't think of opening the door and walking away without asking the policeman, do you mind if I open the door and and walk away? Does does that suggest that I think I've been seized? No, I, I don't think so, Justice Scalia. That just suggests that you're prudent. Uh, when you're dealing it's with an the, armed officer. It's not the police who have authority over the passenger. It's the driver. The driver is exercising authority. And just because the police say pull over, the driver can take off, and the passenger isn't seized at that point. Absolutely, Mr. Chief Justice. I think, again, though, that the, the stop and then the after the stop are, are discrete. So, so now perhaps I'm having so much difficulty, and maybe others are, because we've actually reached a question of law where facts matter. That is, the law points us to the direction of what would a person reasonably think in general in such circumstances. And we can look at five million cases, but we don't know. So what do we do if we don't know? I I could follow my instinct. My instinct is he would feel he wasn't free because the red light's flashing. That's just one person's instinct. Or I could say, let's look for some studies. They could have asked people about this, and there are none. Or I could say, well, you're the state of California. You're the ones able to get the studies. You could tell some of those professors, you know, to stop thinking about whatever they're thinking about and go ask a few practical questions. But you didn't. What should I do? Hold that against you? Uh, Look for more studies? Follow my instinct? I think, Justice Breyer, again, I would keep coming back to the Court's consensual encounter uh, jurisprudence. I think you could ask some of the same questions uh, about uh, in the Drayton case, in the Bostic case, in the Royer case. Uh, but if you accept those as consensual, 
then I'm not sure that this is any less consensual here. Maybe we can just pass until the studies are done. (laughs) Mr. Zoll, assume, and I realize you don't assume, but assume for the sake of argument uh, that that there is a seizure here. What's the significance of the arrest warrant? Our, yeah, I guess there was, there was a warrant, as I understand it, although it was not on the person of the officer who stopped the car. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. What's the significance of that for the outcome of this case? Well, I think uh, that even were this court to rule that the passenger were, uh, were subject to a seizure, that the, uh, the presence of the arrest warrant uh, attenuates any taint and therefore the evidence was, uh, was not suppressible. Well, maybe our, our questions uh, took your colleague uh, representing the petitioner beyond the question presented. The question presented is only whether uh, the passenger felt seized. If, if we um, ag- ag- agree with uh, the petitioner, do we send the case back? I, would, I wouldn't think there would be a need to, to send the case back. I mean, I well, think wh- why? If we have serious doubts whether or not the evidence is suppressible, all we've been asked in the question is, is, is whether the passenger is detained. I, I, I can and see that that's the true. The questions indicated that even if the passenger is detained, who cares? It's a lawful arrest. Well, I, I, think, that, I think that because it's, it's fairly clear that the arrest uh, would uh, would remove the taint from the seizure that there would be little reason to send the case back uh, to the California well, Supreme the, Court. The question hasn't been argued here. Well, I, I think it's subsumed uh, in the question presented, and I think it was raised in our in our opposition, and the parties have briefed it. Um, well, but there's, all, you know, our Brown case establishes a multi-factor test for determining when uh, the illegal seizure has been attenuated, and the court hasn't applied that. The, the California Supreme Court hasn't gone through that test in this case. That that is correct. But again, I think I think because the the warrant um, is is such a clear um, intervening circumstance that has nothing to do, uh, you couldn't in any way say it's an exploitation of the of the illegal stop. But don't don't we have two problems if we, if we go to that stage? Uh, the first one is. Uh, we, we would be applying a test that was not applied uh, by the court uh, we're reviewing. And number two, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the assuming you win, uh, as it were, on the, on the general point about the, uh, the significance of the, of the arrest warrant, there are still going to be questions about the suppression of evidence because there are going to be questions about whether the legality of the arrest on that theory uh, suffices uh, to justify the seizure of the evidence. You recall the colloquy I I, I had with opposing counsel uh, about the possibility of applying a plain view test here. Aren't those issues that should all be decided in the first instance in the state courts? Certainly you could take that position, Justice Souter, but it seems to me that, again, that it's relatively straightforward. The... uh, the arrest was valid. I mean, unquestionably, the arrest was valid. If the arrest is valid, I'm not sure that uh, there are any cases. But the question that's presented is a kind of a standing question. It's who can complain when the police stop a car? You say the driver. The question that's been presented in this case is can the passenger also complain? And that's the only thing that we're dealing with. So the, the arrest warrant may be, pose a disqualification for this particular passenger, but that would be a second question. The question that is tended to us and that was answered by the California Supreme Court is when the car is stopped by the police, who can complain? Absolutely, Justice Ginsburg, I agree. In, in one further point I'd like to make on that is, uh, would be to draw a parallel between uh, a, a parked car situation in which the lower courts have uniformly held that no seizure results when the police um, turn on their lights and approach a parked car, and even when they rap on the window 
to get the attention of the occupants, there's no seizure. No seizure uh, of a of passenger any, or a driver? Of anybody. Um, lower courts have un- uniformly held that, and yet that seems to be a more ambiguous situation in a situation in which the occupant's natural reaction would be to turn to each other and say, what's going on here? Um, whereas, again, in the traffic stop, I think it's, it, it is probably the most likely place that a citizen encounters a policeman, and much more so than a, an officer approaching uh, me at an airport and saying, can I see your identification, or approaching me on a street corner, or, as in Chesternut, f- following me as I'm walking home in his squad car. It, those seem to me to be more anxiety-creating, and yet the court has held that those are consensual encounters. And in the parked car, there's an ambiguity about what the police want, whereas in the routine traffic stop, there, there isn't that ambiguity. So there's no reason why the passenger shouldn't feel free to leave. Now, it might be prudent, as Justice Scalia indicated, to, to say, I'm leaving. Uh, but that doesn't make it a seizure that you should act prudently. I think you should always act prudently when you're dealing with the police. What is uh, this period of time that we're talking about when Mr. Brenlin might or might not have felt that he was free to leave? And as I understand the facts, the officer recognized him as one of the two Brenlin brothers immediately upon approaching the car. Isn't that right? That's, that's right, Your Honor. But I, again, I think so I think it's just the mere presence it would just be from the time that he got out of his parked car, of his car after he parked it, and then, with his lights on, approached the car, and then looks in and sees Mr. Brenlin. So that's the period of time that petitioner would have to establish that a reasonable person would not feel free to leave. And the and the uh, comparison with the parked car and the other consensual encounter cases of this court, uh, in my view, uh, indicate that there's nothing that's been done to the passenger. Uh, I I mean, the arrest of one person, as this Court said in Drayton, does not mean that everyone around him is uh, is detained. So it doesn't seem to the State that anything has been done to the passenger. He just was unlucky enough to be in this car when the driver was stopped for a a traffic violation. And um, that seems to me fairly unambiguous. And um, we don't feel like a reasonable passenger would not feel free to leave in that situation. Well, it may be that we would say that because of the exclusionary rule dynamic, um, we have uh, very little interest in applying the exclusionary rule to this. But I'm not so sure that we should bend the concept of, of seizure to say that the passenger hasn't been seized. Perhaps we should be very liberal insofar as applying the exclusionary rule. And in this case, it seems to me there's a lawful arrest, which is in an intervening cause anyway. But uh, I don't know that we should uh, distort the law of seizure. Uh, Justice Kennedy, I, I wouldn't think you're distorting the law of seizure by saying the passenger isn't seized. It, it, the, nothing is done to the passenger. He happens to be in this stopped vehicle, but the police have directed no action uh, toward him. And so I'm not sure uh, that you would be torturing the definition at all. Suppose 10 or 20 years ago we'd had this case and we decided your way and decided passengers are not seized. And then subsequently we had the question whether an officer could order a passenger out of the car. What would have held then? Would we have said you can't because he was not seized? Or would you say, yes, you were seized? I mean, if if we decided in, in your case there's no seizure, would we then have later on, do you think, said, notwithstanding the absence of a seizure, the officer could order the person out of the car? Yeah, because I think, uh, I think the weighty interest in officer safety would still allow uh, the officer to have some degree of control over the situation. But again, seizable does not mean seized. Uh, the fact that the officer could uh, seize the passenger doesn't mean that the passenger is seized. In most situations where an officer meets a person, unless there's a crime scene or something like that, he can't author, author, order them to cross the street or go someplace else, can he? He can't issue any order to a, to a citizen. But, but again... But he can uh, issue orders to passengers, even though they're not seized. But, Justice Stevens, I think that's because the Court recognized in, in Mims and in Wilson that there's something uh, inherently dangerous 
about the traffic stop situation, and there may be weapons in the car that the officer can't see. And so that's why uh, this Court found in Wilson that uh, you could order the, uh, the officer. Yes, but in that case, it was a blanket rule. The officer didn't have to have a specific reason. And, and that, it seems to me, indicates that that's because uh, the person, as a general rule, knows that he or she is seized. If, if the officer had to give a specific reason uh, for requiring the person to stand outside, uh, as the dissent said, then you might have had a point. But I, I don't think that's what the Court held. I don't think, uh, Justice Kennedy, that the Court ever indicated that the passenger was seized in Wilson uh, prior to the order out. Uh, I know there was a dissent that indicated that the passenger wasn't seized, and the majority never uh, indicated that they disagreed with that point. I think that uh, what happened in Wilson is that the Court just felt that um, May I? You can finish your sentence. Um, the court just felt that uh, the weighty interest in officer safety justified the order out, regardless of whether the passenger was seized at the outset. Thank, Thank you. you, counsel. Uh, Ms. Campbell, you have five minutes remaining. Thank you. Uh, just to, to respond to that last question very briefly, I, I agree with, with Justice Kennedy that Wilson could not have been decided the way that it was decided had there not been an underlying assumption that the passenger is seized because Wilson does not require any reasonable suspicion that the person is um, posing a danger to the driver. Um, I'd also like to respond to uh, the state's argument that, that the passenger in this case simply got unlucky um, and he was in a car with someone, that he happened to be in a car with someone who was stopped for a traffic offense. This passenger wasn't merely unlucky. His Fourth Amendment rights were violated by an unreasonable stop that was unreasonable from its inception. Not only did the officer have no reason to make the stop, he had actually called in and verified and gotten affirmative evidence confirming that there was no reason for the stop. So I that's just — So that still, that's just begging the question of whether or not his Fourth Amendment rights were violated. You're making a good case that the driver's Fourth Amendment rights were violated. But why isn't the passenger, as, as your friend said, just in the unlucky circumstance to have been in a car whose driver's first Fourth Amendment rights were violated? Because, Your Honor, this Court has consistent, this Court held in uh, the Delaware versus Prowse case, rec the Court recognized that passengers as well as drivers have a liberty interest in free travel on the highways. And because if we look at every case this Court has decided in the last 20 or 30 years regarding um, when a seizure occurs, this ca the case of a passenger in an, auto in an auto stop meets the test. Under Hodari D, we need a show of authority or physical control. In this case, we have both. We have the, pa the driver responds to the officer's show of authority, and as a result, the passenger is uh, — is subject to physical control as a direct line. What have we done in, in a case, and, and maybe we haven't had it, but what, what have we done in a case uh, where there's uh, a warrantless entry uh, in violation of the Fourth Amendment of somebody's apartment, and there is a suitcase in there that does not belong to the owner of the apartment? My impression is that 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 the owner of that suitcase has not been uh, subjected to an unreasonable search and seizure. Is that correct? If the, if the person has no expectation of privacy in that suitcase, that is correct, Your Honor. But this Court has recognized in Delaware versus Prowse that a passenger does have, have a privacy liberty interest in free travel. So it's a different situation. Um, once again, um, going back to the Brower case, the, there was there was some question about whether or not the the seizure of a bystander would be a, would be a seizure under the rule proposed by um, by petitioner in this case. Um, Broward talks about an entirely accidental seizure. Well, but there was only one. Pa there was just the driver in the Broward case. The, yes, there was no passenger, as I recall. No, but but under the rule proposed by the state, if there had been a passenger, that passenger would not have been seized. But if we look at how this court well, but I mean, in the case, it's just not directly in point. That's 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 what we're arguing about. Yes, Your Honor. But if we look at the at the case uh, next in line, so to speak, the County of Sacramento versus Lewis case, there was a passenger in that case who was struck by the officer in the pursuit. And the, although the court found no seizure, it didn't base that on the fact that the person was a passenger, but on the fact that it was an accidental application of force as opposed to... So that's to just another case that doesn't help us. I think it certainly informs the discussion, Your Honor. What, what of the um, question that was raised about, well, the passenger is locked in for the moment, but so are all the cars that have backed up behind the car that's been stopped. What's the difference between the passenger? In that case, Your Honor, there, there hasn't been an intentional 
um, impeding of, the, of those people's free, free movement by the officer. The officer has intentionally stopped this vehicle. And it, I, I don't think it's really, uh, it's really far-fetched to argue that, that it's reasonably foreseeable that, pass that automobiles often have passengers in them. And there's certainly um, a large body of, of uh, statutory law, at least in California, that shows that the, the car can be stopped for reasons related to the passenger. So it's a, it's a different situation. Um, we're not looking at an accidental seizure. We're looking at an intentional seizure of the car. Um, just to address for a moment whether or not remand is appropriate in this case, just to clarify the procedural posture, the intermediate appellate court in California did rule that, this, that the evidence seized in this case was the fruit of the poisonous tree and should be suppressed. The California Supreme Court did not grant review on that issue, and it was not, uh, it's not included in the question presented, um, just for clarification. But if well, the, the California Supreme Court didn't have to reach that issue because it found there was no seizure. No, the court did not did not actually request briefing on the issue either. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.